Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. We're going to have a really fascinating conversation about uh, the six steps to managing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And we all know we need tips on that. But before I I, uh, introduce you to our guest, I always like to welcome new listeners. So for those of you that are new and are wondering what we're all about, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people at all levels. So those diagnosed, those caring for them, both family and professionals, as well as um, healthcare advocates, researchers, uh, and so much more. Now, today is a live conversation, so you are always welcome to call in with your questions. That number is 323-870- 4602. That's 323-870-4602. And if you liked our opening song, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Uh, I don't know how many out there have checked out Dementia Map, our global resource directory, but I encourage you to do so. Lots of great information on there. Not only does it have a resource directory, but an events calendar, a blog, and a glossary of terms. And it's growing and changing every day. So go to DementiaMap.com. And we've got some programming coming up that I want to let you know about. If you're in Minnesota, on Thursday the 21st, I'll be doing actually an in-person presentation Uh, sponsored by the Waters of White Bear, and that is going to be about shifting dementia care from crisis to comfort, and we'd love to have you there. Just again, remember to bring your mask. Also have a couple of support groups. Um, Arthur's Senior Care sponsors a memory cafe called Arthur's Memory Cafe, Uh, and we do that every second and fourth Wednesday at 1 o'clock. That is virtual, and that is 1 o'clock Central, so 2 o'clock Eastern time. Anyone is welcome to join us. And then, again, locally, an in-person support group for care partners, caregivers, care companions, carers, whatever you like to call them, uh, which is sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks. We meet the last Wednesday of each month at 10 a.m. Central, And, again, we would absolutely um, love you to attend that. We um, always have great conversations there. And then last I want to mention there are a couple of international conferences coming up. The Plymouth International Virtual Dementia Conference, which is going to focus on the challenges and solutions of COVID worldwide, 
And that will be held October 27th, November 3rd and 10th. Again, that is virtually, there is no cost to that. I will be speaking on the, on the 27th and we'd love to have you sign up for that. And that is going to be recorded as well. And then on November 2nd, um, the Dementia Research Charity Brace is also having a conference that's gonna be exploring some of the global uh, challenges and offerings and um, that is, uh, that one, there is a, a small fee for, I think it's like 10 or $15. That's called uh, Together for Dementia. Um, all of these things, you can reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. And I will be more than glad to get you information on that. We're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. And if you're not familiar with the Foot Bar Walker, it is fantastic. It really does reduce injuries to both the patient and the the person helping them get up and down from that walker. Uh, you can also get a $50 discount and purchase that for a total of uh, $199.99. Uh, again, just go to our site, Alzheimer's speaks.com and you will see the code right there or they are part of dementia map you can find it there so let's get to our guest because i'm really excited to learn six steps to managing uh, alzheimer's disease and, and other forms of dementia i think this is a, a critical topic one that we all need to keep ourselves educated and uh, listen to new ideas so Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Andrew Budson with us, and he received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. He is a professor of neurology at Boston University, a lecturer in neurology um, at Harvard Medical School, and the chief of cognitive behavioral uh, neurology um, at the Veterans Affairs in Boston Healthcare System as well. And he has really combined his education, his research, and his clinical care to help those are struggling with memory disorders. He has co-authored this book, Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's and Dementia, with Maureen uh, O'Connor. And the book is really a truly a comprehensive guide that luckily for the rest of us is written in an easy-to-read style that features both clinical vignettes and character-based anecdotes that really help people understand what it's like in real-life situations uh, when you're caring for a loved one. So welcome, uh, Dr. Bunsen. I'm so thrilled to have you with us. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, you know, before I, I dig into my line of questions here, I always like to ask everybody if they have been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yeah, I've been touched uh, in a couple ways. Uh, the first uh, time was with my grandmother, who uh, developed uh, dementia in her uh, 90s, probably Alzheimer's. She did not have an autopsy, but it it looked like Alzheimer's. And, you know, it, it started out as it, it often does that, you know, it was just a little bit of extra work for my, my aunt, her, her daughter, uh, to care for her. And, you know, cute things would, would happen. Uh, we were at actually her 100th birthday party. She lived to 102. And at her 100th birthday party, she would uh, look over at my, my daughter, who, uh, you know, was probably like, you know, 10 at the time. And she'd say, oh, you look so beautiful. And then She'd do something else for a minute, and then she turned and she see my daughter again. She say, "Oh, you look so beautiful," and uh, you know it, it. It all seemed very pleasant, but then of course it got more difficult as the disease um, progressed. And you know, one of the things I remember is, you know, we were trying to help her to you know sort of remember her early life and we brought in pictures and things like that and we came in one morning and all the pictures were cut up and we have no idea like why she did that um but it uh it, it was very uh, interesting and disturbing and just uh was sort of a lesson to me that it it sort of doesn't matter how much you know, you're a quote-unquote an expert on dementia. There's always something new to throw you a curveball. And then um, even closer, uh, I was much more involved with my uh, my mother-in-law when she developed uh, dementia. And she uh, died about uh, probably around six or seven years ago uh, now, but uh, was very involved in her care. Actually, uh, she began confiding in me. Um, we we were never that close. I, I was not her 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 favorite her favorite relative, uh, but because uh, of course I had this expertise, she began confide, confiding in me when she began to have uh, problems with her uh, her thinking and her memory. And then she began to have uh, a symptom that is not that uncommon where she began to believe um, sort of uh, uh, delusions about her husband. She actually had this interesting uh, phenomenon where she believed her husband was replaced by an imposter and she would be telling me all these things that the imposter husband was uh, was doing and how he wasn't the real husband. And I, um, you know, worked uh, the best I uh, I could with uh, with her, you know, with her husband, my my father-in-law, with my wife, um, you know, to try to help. And uh, you know, it is one of those uh, situations that even though I knew uh, a lot of information, um, there was still a lot I didn't know. And I learned an awful lot uh, through that uh, experience. You know, as, as you hear, it was just a couple of of years ago, and and I had a lot of um, knowledge from what I learned from other families. But I learned a lot through that experience. And in fact, it was that 
experience that that was one of the things that prompted me to write this book for uh, family members to try and just have you know all the information in one place that uh, hopefully you know families can learn you know both through my personal experience but also through my professional experience of, of speaking with literally thousands of families uh, who have gone through uh, uh, caring for a loved one with dementia. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talked about no matter how much of an expert you are, there's so much we don't know. And, Absolutely. You know, with your grandma cutting up the pictures, I mean, it, it could have been something as simple as she was aggravated. She couldn't remember who people were and just got yeah. frustrated. I mean, we just we just really don't know what those things and. And the imposter with your mother-in-law, I've heard that story so many times. Yeah. You know, this isn't my husband. He was a nice man. This man is, is you know, this man is old or this man is mean or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, very, very common and very scary. You know, people just don't know how to react to that. How, right. you know, how can somebody not know me after all these years and and things and take it, take it personal. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I wanted you uh, to kind of start out with discussing treatments for for memory loss, including, you know, the new controversial drug with with Biogen um, and what some of your thoughts are in terms of of what's available or what's coming down the pike. Yeah, great. So, uh, yeah, I I will say that uh, we do have a a big, big part of the book. Uh, Step three is ask about uh, medications. I want all of our caregivers out there to be sort of armed with the knowledge. The the first chapter in that section is actually about all the medications that can impair thinking and memory. And I'm actually really pleased that uh, the publisher allowed us to put in both the generic names and the brand names of all these medications that can actually make thinking and memory worse. And that, you know, it doesn't mean these medicines should be immediately thrown out or discontinued, but, you know, I I want everyone out there to at least know that uh, some of these medicines can actually make thinking and memory worse, and it's good to talk with uh, your loved one's doctor uh, about those medicines. But then the next chapter is about all the medicines that can help. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, I'm a big fan of the class of medicines that help to uh, raise up a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine. And these are medicines that uh, I bet many of your your listeners uh, know about. Um, This is uh, medications like Dinepazil, whose brand name is Aricept, Rivastigmine, whose brand name is Exelon, and Galantamine. So all of those medicines help to raise up acetylcholine. And from the perspective of the individual and their family, what these medications can do, and this is supported by the studies, is they can turn the clock back on memory loss by 6 to 12 months. So what I mean by that is when someone comes into my clinic and I give them a prescription for one of these medications, uh, I can make their memory like it was six months ago or maybe even a year ago. And uh, the earlier they come to see me, the more likely it is that I'm going to be able to turn the clock back for a full year. 
And that's simply because there are more brain cells that are still living that the medication can work on. So that's the first thing I want to say you know, clearly to all your, your listeners out there that if your loved one has not tried one of these types of medications, it's worth giving them a try. The studies suggest not only can it make their memory better, but it also can improve uh, behavior and make behaviors uh, less for most forms of uh, dementia. And it, although the, these medications can turn the clock back, I also want to be very clear it, they cannot stop the clock from ticking down. So if I can make somebody, let's say, make their memory a, a, a year better, like it was last year, if I see them two or three years later, yes, indeed, they are going to be worse. But that doesn't mean it isn't still working. And uh, typically, if they had a good initial reaction, we really want them to stay on this medicine pretty much uh, forever. Because if they stop it, you know, what happens is they'll suddenly plummet 6 to 12 months' worth of memory function in 1 to 2 weeks. So so generally, if they've had a good response, we want them to stay on it until, you know, we're at the very end of life where, you know, end-of-care uh, goals are the goal. You know, the goal is for the person to reach the end of their life with care and comfort and dignity. And, you know, that's a, a stage that I, I don't think we should shy away from. I know some people are uncomfortable talking about that, but uh, but I think that's an important thing to talk about, too. Now, wouldn't it be great if we had a medication that could actually slow down that ticking clock? And that is what this new medication uh, made by the Biogen company, Adnucanumab, uh, or Aduhelm is the brand name, um, that's what it is supposed to do. And the way that it uh, is intended to do this is by removing the beta amyloid plaques in the brain. And I totally believe that it is able to remove the beta amyloid plaques in the brain. But what I am not convinced of is that it will make people clinically better. If you look at the study, <clears throat> the studies and the data that was submitted to the FDA, what you can see is of two large studies, each of these large studies had over 1,000 people in them. One of the medications, uh, one of the trials did actually improve uh, people's thinking and memory that would be equivalent to turning the clock back three months over the 18-month uh, trial. The other trial, however, not only was it neutral, it actually, uh, people got worse having the equivalent of the clock turned ahead by three months. So right off the bat, we sort of have, you know, of the two large trials, one of them seemed to work, the other one seemed to not work in exactly the same uh, amount. So this is one of the reasons that the FDA advisory uh, panel recommended that the medication not be approved because they're like, well, one trial works, the other trial doesn't work. Now, to be fair to the FDA, you know, the company had a lot of reasons as to why they thought uh, the failed trial failed. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, what the FDA panel believed, and I also personally agree with this, is that they simply need to do another trial. You know, could it work? Yeah, it's possible it works, but they need to do another trial. And the other reason why I think another trial is important is that uh, people can have side effects of this medication. And um, I actually uh, uh, work at one of the sites where the trials uh, of this medication were going on. And I have seen the patients and the MRI scans of these individuals who were in the trials. And up to uh, 30% uh, of patients have uh, brain swelling. And if the brain swelling is not addressed, and sometimes even when it is, it can possibly lead to strokes. And 10% of people had small brain bleeds. So, you know, when you look at the whole thing and you're not sure if it works and you're sure that 30% of people have brain swelling and 10% of people have brain bleeds, you know, it, it, it makes one pause when uh, considering to actually prescribe it. And I uh, am not 100% opposed to prescribing it, but I have not to this date prescribed it to anyone because once I describe the, uh, the data and the potential side effects like I've just done for you, no one has wanted to take it. Well, and, and that is understandable, and I appreciate you kind of stepping through things with that. I, um, in terms of the medications and and kind of sorting that out for people, and you know, with the the brain swelling, I mean, I it just takes me back to, and this isn't even dementia related, but how much damage uh, brain swelling can do. My dad was in the hospital with cancer; <clears throat> he had a, mm. a brain tumor. And his doctor, his oncologist, for whatever reason, took him off his uh, the the medication to help with the brain swelling. He took him off cold turkey. And I watched my dad almost die before my eyes. I mean, it was uh, amazing, the effect. I walked in there in the morning. He was able to talk. And by four hours later, he he was gaunt. He, you know, his eyes were starting to roll back in his head the whole nine yards, and I had to actually get a patient advocate because the nurse was like, that's just how he is. I'm like, it's my, excuse my language, it's my damn dad. I know what he's like. Yeah. And there's something wrong. Yeah. And it, it took a it took me running down to get a patient advocate up to get another doctor who caught the error. They gave him a shot, and in 20 minutes, he was fine. But the doctor said literally he would have died. Yeah, know, this is with, probably some type of steroid, I assume. Yeah, I don't remember what it was, but yeah. you know, it's it, those things are are you know can be really really serious. All of this stuff and yes, and, and then with the you know you talking about the the amyloid and the plaques. I mean, there's been studies that have said, well, that isn't necessarily the cause either. You right. know, with with dementia, and so it's there's just so much confusion out there to the public, and yet. Um, everybody wants a cure, but also everybody wants it to be safe and, and then, of course, reasonably cost, which is a whole other factor we won't even want right, to Right, right, exactly, yes. 
because um, I've got lots of other things I want to talk to you on. I do want to remind any of our listeners, if you have a question, you can call in at 323-870-4602. Um, but in the meantime, let's uh, talk about the effects of COVID on the brain, because, you know, I've been talking with a lot of people um, in terms of, you know, what's going on with COVID and the long-term effect um, on the brain, as well as with all the fires and um, all the junk in the air there that they say can be causing some issues, um, both, um, you know, with the heart and lungs, which then can affect the brain, um, too. And I just see these numbers skyrocketing um, because we also know that, you know, the numbers, anyways, I personally believe they're as high as they are. There's still a lot of people out there that aren't diagnosed um, and don't want to. So what do you think about COVID and um the effects um, on people who maybe already have dementia and how it could affect those in the future who um, who end up getting COVID. Sure. Yes. Well, you know, the first thing to say is, you know, even just being in the pandemic for someone with dementia, even if one doesn't have COVID, it can be absolutely terrible. And so many of my patients have really suffered, you know, they're often in, you know, let's say an assisted living facility or a nursing home, and it starts out and, you know, pre-COVID, it's a nice community, and they spend all their time in the common rooms, in the dining room, and they're, you know, they're with other people, and, and you know, their families are visiting, and they're just having a, you know, a, a nice time. And then the pandemic hits, and what happens? Right. Everyone's told, oh, you have to stay in your room, you know, and of course, most of these people, they don't understand why they need to stay in their room. They can't remember why they need to stay in their room. And, you know, uh, uh, many of them just totally deteriorated uh, just from the, you know, enforced social isolation. It's just been been terrible. It's just really been terrible. And I'm glad that, you know, finally with uh, people being, you know, vaccinated and getting the booster shot and the numbers being down, that, you know, finally some of those restrictions are being lifted. So, so just the social isolation is terrible. And then, you know, it is worth talking for a minute about what COVID can do both directly and indirectly to the brain. So COVID can damage the brain in a couple different ways. It can actually damage the brain as a virus directly, uh, which is called encephalitis. So it can cause uh, an encephalitis that can be mild or it can be quite severe. So that's the first way. The second way it can damage the brain uh, directly is it can cause strokes. And sometimes the strokes are little and sometimes the strokes are actually quite big. And um, we are learning that in addition to the strokes being caused by the normal mechanism, like it it may uh, accelerate like cholesterol building up on arteries, this weird type of a cell, it's called a megakaryocyte, uh, that sort of is filling up these small blood vessels and preventing the the normal red blood cells uh, from getting through. So there's a bunch of different ways that the COVID can cause uh, <clears throat> damage to the brain directly. And then, as you were alluding to, 
COVID can also, of course, cause trouble with breathing. And, you know, we think about COVID as primarily a respiratory um, uh, virus. And when people's oxygen levels drop too low, the part of the brain that is most susceptible to the low levels of oxygen is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is the part of your brain that forms new memories. And it's what's already impaired in people with Alzheimer's and and many other uh, dementias. So COVID number one can, uh, you know, just from the pandemic can make people worse. And then if people are unlucky enough to actually get infected with COVID, it can cause direct or indirect uh, damage to the brain. So it really is a terrible thing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the isolation along with the the physical things that that can happen um, because isolation has been such a huge, huge issue. And what's been interesting is um, people living with dementia and their care partners have both said that this year is way worse than last year because last year they felt like there was hope, there was going to be a vaccine, and then we'd get back to normal. And now it seems like things, even though we have the vaccine, it's still complicated. There's new strains and people with the vaccine are even getting it. And they're just feeling, um, they're, they're not feeling as hopeful. And they're shut in longer and it's taken taken a toll on people. So I think we have to be really conscious of that. Um, I want to talk about some strategies that anyone can, can uh, do to deal with memory issues you know, if they're having uh, maybe mild cognitive impairment, you know, earlier sure. on. Um, so if you can if you can talk about that, you know, a lot of people refer to that as, as even uh, brain fog. You know, just not clicking on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah, a- ab- absolutely. So, um, you know, brain, brain fog is a, a term that has been out there a little while, but it became much more uh, prominent uh, when COVID uh, started. And um, it it is uh, similar to mild cognitive impairment in the sense that, you know, it, it's essentially describing, you know, some mild uh, uh, thinking and memory problems. Uh, brain fog is not, it's not really a, a medical or a technical term, so I, I can't give you a, a, a definition of it, but I, I totally agree with you, Lori, that, um, you know, what people describe with mild cognitive impairment does sound pretty similar. So for mild cognitive impairment, that means that um, someone is concerned about the memory. It, it can be the individual themselves. It can be their family or it can be their doctor. Uh, the second thing with somebody with mild cognitive impairment is when they undergo pencil and paper testing, yes, indeed, a problem is found. So the concern is confirmed with the pencil and paper testing. But their day-to-day function is normal, and that's the reason that it's not dementia, because dementia, of course, means that function is impaired. The, there are a lot of different things that people can do to keep their memory uh, strong. And I want to actually uh, recommend the first book I wrote with my, my colleague, Maureen O'Connor, uh, to help with this, and that is Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. Because one of the first things that uh, I encourage everyone 
really everyone, uh, uh, regardless of whether they're young or old and whether their memory is normal or not, but particularly if they're a little bit older and experiencing memory loss, is to eat right, exercise, and engage in, in social activities. Because those lifestyle modifications uh, have really been shown to be important. And probably exercise is the most important one, and particularly aerobic exercise. I do think the word has gotten out about that, but I want to just mention it to your listeners because it is so important. And then for diet, it's a Mediterranean-style uh, menu of foods, things like fish, olive oil, avocados, fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, whole grain, and we can add chicken to that list from the studies of the MIND diet. And of course, in addition to it being these healthy foods, we also want people to uh, to maintain a healthy body weight between the exercise and the Mediterranean uh, menu of foods because that's important as well. And then, you know, we talked about social isolation being uh, harmful. Well, it turns out you can sort of flip that on its head and social activities are actually beneficial. So I want everyone to uh, make sure that they stay uh, socially active. Now, once people have done all the basics, you know, the question is, well, you know, what about, you know, specific strategies to help? And the the bottom line is that the, uh, strategies tend to be very targeted, uh, which is a good thing. So a strategy won't necessarily help you remember like everything, but strategies can help you remember things, for example, such as like people's names. So that is, you know, one of the most common questions I get asked is like, you know, how can I help remember somebody's name better? And uh, there are some things that are uh, relatively uh, simple to do. So we always uh, recommend if you're meeting someone new uh, for the first time that you say uh, the name back. Like say, oh, nice to meet you, Lori, or, uh, or something like that. And uh, then if it comes up in the conversation, to use the person's name again, to say it out loud. And if it doesn't naturally come up, say it out loud to yourself. Oh, this is Lori. And then you want to try to connect the name to uh, something that is meaningful for you. Maybe you know somebody else with that name, or maybe uh, the name reminds you of, uh, of something you want to try and form a connection. If you can, you then want to form a visual image of the person's name and preferably to have the image fit in with something in the person's uh, face or another part of their appearance so that when you see the person later, you'll be able to connect uh, that sort of image that you've made uh, with the person's appearance to help you uh, remember their name. So you might be thinking right now like, oh my God, you have to do all of that to just remember someone's name? And the answer is, well, you know, there's no free lunch. That part of what helps you to remember the person's name is that you're putting some effort into it. Effort is one of the things that makes one remember uh, information over time. 
so the effort uh, of doing all those things actually is important. And the last thing I'll just say about names is uh, oftentimes the problem somebody has with names isn't learning the name of someone new. It's recalling the name of someone that you've known for 30 years, but you're having trouble you know, coming up with it. And the best advice I can give there is to uh, make sure you don't accidentally block the name. Because if you come up with a name that's close, like if you say, oh, now what's her name? Is it Laura? No, it's not Laura, not Laura. And like every time I say the name Laura, it's blocking the name Lori. And uh, so the best thing to do is not to keep saying the wrong name. That's not going to help. But think about other things that you know about the person. Think about what they look like. Think about their their field. You know what their interests are in. How you know them. You know anything like that. And that will provide a connection that will help the name to surface without blocking. So those Wonderful. are a few a, a few little tips on strategies. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And I love that you brought up the social um, engagement and activities. I think for so many years that was overlooked, and it's nice to see that coming to the forefront. I truly believe that's why my mom lived as long as she did with the disease, as she was engaged. And, um, you know, until her last um, three years when she was really in, in the end stages. Um, but even then, she was still part of the community and engaged just on a, on a whole different level. And I, I hear that from people living with the disease all the time. In fact, one of the most common statements they say is, you know, I thought I had purpose with my life before, but I, I really didn't. I do now. And they totally feel that that is um, pushing back the symptoms. When they are when they are actively engaged and feeling purposeful, so uh, that's nice to hear. Um, can you just briefly tell us? I, I can't believe we only have like 20 minutes left. It goes so fast. Um, some people might want to know what the difference is between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Sure. Um, as a whole. Yeah. So uh, dementia is a general term that uh, simply means that thinking and memory has deteriorated to the point that it interferes with day-to-day function. And, you know, the way I think about uh, the word dementia as a general term, is like I think about another general term like the word headache, right? So a headache can be from a lot of different causes. Uh, some of them are relatively benign, like you can have a migraine headache or a muscle tension headache. But uh, headaches can also be caused by very serious things like a stroke or a brain tumor. And with dementia, it's the same way. So there's actually some causes of dementia that can be uh, from something as simple and treatable as a thyroid disorder or a vitamin deficiency. But dementia can, of course, also be caused by a variety of different brain diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, which is dementia due to strokes, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies, which is similar to Parkinson's disease dementia. There's uh, behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, and there's many other types as well. So dementia is the general category, and Alzheimer's is one type or one cause of dementia. 
Okay, wonderful. <clears throat> Do you can you just highlight really quickly um the six steps for managing sure. Alzheimer's and dementia? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the first step is understand dementia. And the idea here is to make sure that um, you have uh, worked with your loved one's uh, healthcare professionals, with their doctors, and that you understand, you know, what type of their dementia ha they have so that you really get a, a good sense as to the prognosis. What's the future going to look like? And, you know, I... Uh, sort of, you know, continuing with this sort of theme, you, you know, sometimes families are, are told, well, they have dementia, you know, and I tell them, you go back and you ask the doctor, what type of dementia does my loved one have? What is the cause of the dementia? Because otherwise, it's sort of like if you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, you know, my head hurts. You know, can you tell me what's wrong with me? And the doctor says, oh, you have a headache. That's what's wrong with you. You're like, what? No, I want to know what's causing it, you know. So, you know, families should not put up with just being told their loved one has dementia. They, they should insist on understanding what the uh, different causes are. And in the book, we talk about the most common causes of dementia. And then in the end, we even talk about the uncommon causes. So even if the doctor you're working with can't come up with the right answer, uh, I'm hoping that the families can read through the descriptions and they can figure out uh, what the problems are, um, are due to. So then step two is manage problems. And here we talk about how to non-pharmacologically uh, manage all sorts of different problems that come up in dementia. We start off with some general approaches, like we talk about the four R's, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. We talk about the importance of reassuring our loved one, about uh, reconsidering the situation from their point of view, redirecting them to something that is calming and, and uh, more pleasant for them, and relaxing, which is something we all need to do ourselves when in the throes of dealing with a stressful situation. We talk about other general approaches as well. Sometimes these simple measures like the four R's aren't enough, and we talk about how sometimes you need to use the ABC approach, look at the antecedents, what comes before the behaviors, look at the behaviors themselves and try and break them down, and look at the consequences, what happened uh, in the behavior. You know, if, if mom says, you know, I don't want to take a bath, and she yells and screams for 10 minutes, and then you say, okay, fine, let's skip the bath. What have we just done? Have we just reinforced that if mom yells for 10 minutes, she doesn't have to do something she doesn't want to do. So we talk about how you can break down um, these sorts of situations and better understand them. And then after this sort of general approach, uh, uh, my colleague and I, we, we use our, our knowledge of the way the brain and cognition work 
to uh, approach problems with memory and language and vision and emotional issues and behavioral problems and sleep problems and problems with bodily functions like incontinence. How do you deal uh, with all of those different problems uh, non-pharmacologically? Then uh, step three is ask about medications that I uh, mentioned before. We talk about the medications that make things worse to be aware of, as well as the medications to make things better. Step four is build your care team. And we talk first about starting with the most important member of the care team, which is you, the primary caregiver, and how you can make sure that you are taking good care of yourself because you can't be the best caregiver if you're not neglecting yourself. Uh, my, my colleague uh, uses this wonderful uh, line, which is, you can't pour from an empty cup. So we talk about how to do activities and take care of yourself and refill your cup. And then, of course, we talk about the fact that no one can take care of someone with dementia all by themselves. And we talk about both the importance of this and also practical steps of how you can enlist family and friends and neighbors and professionals to help build your care team. Step five is sustain your relationship. And we talk about how one needs to accept the fact that relationships are going to change in dementia. The person is not going to be your same parent, your same sibling, your same spouse that they were before once they're really in the throes of dementia. But that doesn't mean you can't have a meaningful relationship with them. You may need to work at it uh, a little bit, and we give people some practical advice there. And then finally, step six is plan for the future. And here we talk about both you know, how do you plan for transitions? Like, when do you know if it's time uh, for someone to have uh, respite care? Uh, when is it time to think about uh, assisted living or nursing home? We talk about how do you actually make those uh, transitions so they go as smoothly as possible. And we acknowledge that sometimes you can do everything right and it still don't go smoothly. Um, and then we have a whole section on end of life. And, you know, we say in the beginning of this chapter, you know, there's some heavy stuff here. You can read this now. You can read it later. Take in as much or as little as you like. But we don't shy away from talking about how do you know when the end of life is near? You know, what are the changes that you're going to see uh, in your loved one? You know, to think about, you know, how, you know, does your loved one want the end of their life uh, to be? How do you want it to be? Do you want to be there? Do you not want to be there? We, you know, do you want it to be in the hospital? Do you want it to be at home? Do you want it to be in the nursing home? You know, we talk about these different things, you know, how does hospice work and palliative care and what's the difference between palliative care and hospice and um, all sorts of issues like that. And we talk a little bit about funerals and things to think about there and uh, things like brain donation. And then finally, we talk about, you know, if one has spent the last two, three, maybe four, five, six years of their life being a primary caregiver, and that's become one's identity, what do you do afterwards? How do you sort of go beyond that and continue on uh, 
with your life. We talk about those issues as well. So those are the six steps to managing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Oh, those are wonderful. Um, I'm just going to pick a couple of them out um, that just really resonate with me. I I love that you're talking about planning for the future and respite care and a possible move and an end of life. Um, People push off tapping into palliative and hospice care um, so late, and it's too bad because it, it would help them. Um, out so much. There is a, an organization, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called Compassion and Choices. Mm-hmm. And they actually have a wonderful um, health declaration that you can fill out online. And um, it doesn't cost you anything, but it makes you think really deeply about how how do you want to live at the end of life. And, and I, I'm not diagnosed with dementia, but I could be. You know, my mom had it. So uh, that is something I, I went to do, and then I thought I printed it out, and I didn't. <laughs> and so I have to go back in there and do it again. But you can actually save it if you want to go back in and just review that every year. Um, it, but it's just a, it's a it's a really helpful way to think about things. And so much of what is on there regarding dementia, you know, could happen with so many other situations in life that we're not expecting as well. So I, I really encourage people to check that out. I love that you talked about no one should care alone you know uh, and it's just not healthy you know we're we're here as a community and we can't be our best and give our best you know it like you said if we're not full and I found that out the hard way I uh, pushed friends away <clears throat> that wanted to support me because I didn't think I had time because I was so busy being busy right. and then when I went um, you know I cried and uh, we all kind of cried and laughed together for like two hours. And I thought I'm coming every week to coffee because uh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know how um, broken I was, how empty I had gotten, and right. how I was refilled. And so that is a, I think, a really, really important, um, important piece. You talked about, you know, assessing medications. So often there can be um, contradictions between what we're giving people. And, you know, that can spar things on. And I, I loved um, the four R's and the, the ABCs uh, <clears throat> that you talked about as well. So lots of lots of great, great um, information. Again, I would highly recommend people um, purchase this book. Again, Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. What can family members really do to support themselves and their relationships. Um, you know, you had mentioned, and I love that too, that, you know, sustain your relationships. And and people think, oh, but, you know, I, I, I didn't plan for this. Well, you know, we're all changing. It's not just the person with dementia. We all change throughout life and people come and go in our lives and our personalities and our wants and needs change. And this is just another stage in life. <clears throat> and I think if we can put it in that mind frame, that um, this is another stage. None of us stays the same. It it makes it a little bit easier to deal with. But to me, that's one of the biggest losses I see is when people give their relationship over to this disease and just say, you know, I can't do this or I don't know how or I'm just so uncomfortable and they walk away. Yeah, no, you, you make just really excellent uh, points and you know what what I generally uh, recommend is you know you have to sort of you know for example accept the fact 
that although you and let's say your spouse used to love to go out to, you know, have dinner and then go to the movies, you know, that that just may not be possible uh, anymore. But that doesn't mean you can't have a nice uh, uh, dinner. You know, maybe you get a takeout dinner as a special uh, special treat and, uh, you know, but you're eating at home and then you can sit down on the couch and, you know, watch an old movie that, you know, your your loved one has has loved for, you know, for, for 40, 50 years. And you can still enjoy, you know, the same type of experience, maybe not quite like before, but something something uh, uh, something akin, and you know, a, a couple that used to play cards together every night. You know, maybe your loved one can't really play the card games like they used to, but they might still enjoy, um, you know, watching you play solitaire, and you can have them help you know move the cards around. And of course, it's it's not really about playing the game or watching the movie. It's really just about spending time uh, with your loved one. So they're there has to be both an acceptance that, yes, things aren't going to be the way they were before, but at the same time, there can be still an enjoyment of uh, doing things together. I so agree, and I think that's really important, especially with the holidays coming up. And granted, right. everybody's holidays with COVID is a little bit different. Yeah. But sometimes we hold on to traditions that um, just don't work for the person with dementia anymore. And, you know, some of these changes aren't really big that we have to make. And it would make the um, the whole holiday season easier on everybody instead of fighting to try to make the old ways work, just accommodating, you know, new ways. I mean, we do that as families expand and people get married and have children. I mean, we we adjust all the time. Yeah, no, but, I think that. <clears throat> I, I, oh, go ahead. I, say, I, I think it's a it's a really good point, and and I did want to uh, just jump in with one comment with the holidays uh, approaching. I think uh, you know uh, a lot of us uh, caregivers we all know about sundowning, right? So so usually uh, most people with uh, Alzheimer's and other dementias have uh, more trouble in the late afternoon, early evenings. Well, when are most sort of, you know, holiday times like, you know, Christmas dinner, Christmas Eve dinner, you know, a lot of them are in the late afternoon or early evenings. You know, it's like that may just not be an ideal time if you want to include the individual with dementia in the celebration. You know, maybe the thing to do is to have a special Christmas brunch, you know, Christmas morning brunch or, or, you know, I, you know, have your Thanksgiving a little bit earlier in the day than you might otherwise have had it. And all of a sudden, you know, instead of the individual with dementia being a problem, you know, now they can be participating because it's a good time of the day for them. Well, or having, instead of a real big gathering, having multiple small ones so it's more intimate. Um, Knowing that blinking lights and stuff can be distracting or even Halloween garb, um, you know, some of that stuff can be tripping hazards. Some of it can just cause a lot of fear um, and startle people. Um, Noise levels, making sure that they, you know, if you are going to a big gathering that you know where you can go that's quiet. 
and not that you're taking them out because they can't handle it, but, you know, approach it that, you know, gosh, this is a little noisy for me. Do you mind if you go for a walk with me? And they're usually glad to assist right. you and go with you. So not making it about them, but just understanding what their needs are. <clears throat> I know I'm 62 now, and, and noise levels um, irritate me more than they ever used to, you know, <laughs> in terms of that background noise and being able to sort things out. I never understood that when my parents talked about that stuff. <laughs> and uh, I've arrived. And, uh, you know, my girlfriends have too, and we kind of we kind of giggle about that stuff. But there are so many things that we can do that can make it enjoyable for all of us. Because a lot of the times those big events are stressful on everybody, if we want to admit it or not. Um, <clears throat> but we can sort it out a little bit more than someone who's having cognitive issues. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I have my allergies. They're just kicking in gear here with me. Um, but, uh, Dr. Bunsen, I, this has just been a fabulous conversation. You've given us such great, great information here. I know our audience is absolutely going to love it. I want to make sure I get your contact information um, for people so that they can um, purchase your Six Steps to Managing Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia and the other books that you've written. <clears throat> they can go to your website, which is andrewbunsenmd.com. And there's a books tab on your website as well. And you also have a Twitter account, Abe Bunsen. And and then I don't know if you want to give an email or if you just prefer them to contact you through your through your website. Sure, sure. Yeah, my uh, you can do it that way. It goes to the same place. It's simply a Budson at b u for Boston University dot edu. So it's just my first initial last name at Boston at b u dot edu. Okay, wonderful. Um, we've got just a, a little over a minute left. Any last-minute advice that you'd like to squeeze in? Well, you know, I, I I really want to encourage people to, you know, arm themselves with knowledge. You know, you don't want to go into, you know, memory problems and dementia without, you know, learning about it. And because it's complicated, but there really is good information out there. So whether it's from my books or other, you know, reputable sources, uh, like from your, your dementia map, um, you know, we I really want people to, to learn about the disease and don't be afraid of it. Once you understand it, you'll learn there's a lot you can do. Exactly. Great advice. Well, thank you so much. And again, I really encourage people to get this book. It's just loaded with information. I mean, we've just been talking uh, for an hour and we've gotten so much um, from this. And again, in simple terms that are understandable to to digest. Um, So that is absolutely fantastic. Again, you can go to the website, andrewhudsonmd.com. And to our listeners, you know, like, click, and share this. Uh, don't don't be uh, shy and greedy when you find information. You know, we need to we need to spread the word. We need to let others know about information. Um, information is power, and it brings a calmness and a serenity, and uh, a feeling that we're not alone, uh, which can make this whole journey so much easier. So, thank you again <clears throat> for listening, and. Uh, And thank you for spending time with us today. Again, Doctor, really appreciate it very much. It's been my pleasure. Okay. Bye, everyone. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. 
Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.